morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet here on WMNF Tampa. And I'm Tom. And today is the last day to vote in the primary election season. So make sure you get out there and vote. If you have not today, you can do so today anytime before 7 p.m. Um, at your regular polling place. Uh, and answering the phones for us today is the always heat-sensitive John Dunn. If you want to join our conversation today, call us at 813-239-9663. John will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves in Florida conservation circles for more than a decade. Carlton Ward Jr. is a photographer who has worked with National Geographic and the Smithsonian documenting the wild side of Florida, the hidden places few of us see. He has captured extraordinary images of endangered Florida panthers, ghost orchids, black bears, Florida cowboys, and much more. Welcome, Carlton. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Carlton's work with scientists, ranchers, and conservationists prompted him to co-found the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation. The foundation aims to preserve 17.7 million acres of land for the wildlife whose survival depends on it. The concept has been, <clears throat> let's see, wildly popular and bipartisan. This year, the Republican-controlled legislature appropriated $300 million for land purchases and conservation easements to protect 18 8.1 million acres in the corridor. That's 8.1 million of the 17.7 million that the foundation aims to preserve. Um, yet threats remain, particularly from new highways and interchanges proposed by the Florida Department of Transportation. So, Carlton, you have trekked 2,000 miles along the corridor on two National Geographic-supported expeditions to advocate for the corridor's protection. How did you shift from documenting wild Florida to trying to save it? Actually, for me, <clears throat> the motivation to save it was the whole purpose and ever documenting it in the first place. I had begun my career um, studying ecology. You know, I came into this as a conservationist as I kind of picked up a camera and pursued photojournalism. My first work was in Gabon in Central Africa, and this was 2001 to 2005. I was going for three-month-long expeditions, promoting conservation in a, in a developing African country. But every time I came home to Florida, there was a new subdivision on what used to be natural land or a cattle ranch. And I kind of realized that the landscapes of my youth were kind of disappearing before my eyes, and I, I felt pulled to try to make a difference here. And you are making a difference uh, through the Florida Wildlife uh, Corridor <coughs> Foundation, and I know you. It, it, it's, it's been about a decade of work uh, that your group has been in the middle of, and I think we have some news today from some of this progress being made. Today is a great day in Tallahassee. Can you tell us about what happened? Right now, uh, Governor DeSantis and the cabinet are finishing their second cabinet meeting of the year. And at that meeting, there were seven properties within the Florida Wildlife Corridor 
up for consideration for either state purchase or conservation easement. And all seven of those properties were approved. And so um, just you know, within, within, the, within the last hour, we've had nearly 20,000 acres approved for protection within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. So that's a huge step forward. Another 20,000 acres. And where, where are they? Are they spread out throughout the corridor or are they in a certain location? On today's agenda, they were distributed through South Central Florida and the Panhandle. They're the furthest from Tampa being up near Pensacola, an area called the Coastal Headwaters or Wolf Creek Forest Project. Another one um, a little further east in the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. Several of these properties were in the Everglades Headwaters region, areas in Highlands County and Okeechobee County that are contributing to connectivity in that part of the state. Closest to home for us was a big acquisition of a conservation easement on Horse Creek. And this is in the Peace River Valley, just interior of Sarasota. It was a 16,000-acre conservation easement. 11,000 acres came from the state of Florida, 4,000 from the Southwest Florida Water Management District. Explain to us what it means to, have, to, to, to get a conservation easement. People understand the Florida Ac- Land Acquisition Program. It's been inc- extremely popular um, where they buy up land and then often the public can have access to it. What's different between that and a conservation easement? A conservation easement is when, in this case, the state doesn't buy all of the land. They buy the development rights. So most properties throughout Florida, most large parcels, most places in the corridor have an allocated development density. They're allowed to have, say, one house on five acres or whatever the case may be. That's a value that can be bought from that landowner, taken away, so that land can never be developed. Um, Broad brushstrokes, it can be 50 cents on the dollar for what the land would sell for on the open market, depending where you are and how close it is to development. And what that does, it gives the landowner the resources to keep managing and protecting the land into the future, keep using it for a compatible use like a cattle ranch or um, rotating crops and agriculture. I see. And uh, I think we should probably also help our listeners understand or define the Florida Wildlife Corridor because it's it's big, it's sprawling, and it, sometimes it's difficult to to kind of figure out where it is. And and what is it? What and is what exactly? Is yeah. How do we how do we determine what the fi- wildlife corridor is? Good question. So the Florida Wildlife Corridor is a subset of something called the Florida Ecological Greenways Network, and this is the science of basically how you connect up the green space in Florida. Florida is blessed by, as you mentioned, a great legacy of conservation. That's left us with 10 million acres of public land. However, if we continue on our current development trajectory, most of those public lands will become islands surrounded by development. And that's not good for the wildlife, for the water, or for the people who want to use and access these places. The Florida Wildlife Corridor is a solution that helps invest in protecting the green space that's those missing links that connect the green backbone of Florida. So if you're looking at Florida from a map, you go from south in the Everglades, north to Ocala National Forest, and further north to the Okefenokee Swamp. There's a swath of green that broadly aligns with the Everglades watershed and the St. John's River. 
you know, sweeping over to the Suwannee River watershed and across the panhandle kind of parallel to Interstate 10 and on up into Georgia and Alabama. 18 million acres, it represents half of the state of Florida. 60% or so, those 10 million acres are already permanently protected. The 8 million acres are those spaces in between that are still connected now through different uses, mainly agricultural. And if we don't invest in their protection in the next 20, 30 years, most of those can be lost. And the idea is that this is so that wildlife can sort of traverse the state, that they can get around from around the state un, un, unimpeded and not have to be, like you said, uh, sort of confined to an island surrounded by development. Is that why we call it a corridor? Is that the idea of it? That's the idea. That's also how we connect with the idea. It's about much more than wildlife. Okay. But if we think about <clears throat> the wildlife or wildlife are the symbols for the corridor. It was inspired by the Florida black bear, these animals that are wide ranging and need lots of land. Um, or me, more recently, I've been doing a lot of work with the Florida panther. A single male Florida panther has a home range of 200 square miles. That's twice the size of Orlando, four times the size of Miami. Mm-hmm. There are very few places in Florida or even in the eastern United States where a single property by single ownership or by a single agency can serve the home range needs of even one panther. It, by definition, requires a connected fabric, a connected fabric of adjacent lands working together. And so these animals, the bears, the panthers, the ones that need the most land, they show us what we need to do to protect their habitat needs. But ultimately what they're doing is showing us what we need to do to save wild Florida. And that's for the benefit of all the other species that live in under the umbrella of these wide-ranging species. It's also what we need to do to protect the headwaters of the Hillsborough River and the Green Swamp or the headwaters of the Everglades near Orlando or the headwaters of the St. Johns River. So it's it's about our green infrastructure and having a balance between our economies and the ecology that supports us all. Mm-hmm. But the wildlife in the wildlife corridor kind of helps create a framework, framework where we can see we have work to do. This is actually an infrastructure plan. It's a, it's a way to keep the green and natural part of Florida working for all of us. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the Live Wildly campaign. I think a lot of us have seen that, that we have that, that camp, Live Wildly campaign, which talks about promoting the wildlife corridor. It's sort of blowing up all of my social media news feeds. Are you connected with that? And um, tell us about that. What, what is the goal of that campaign? I was a part of a group of people who worked together to bring that campaign to life. It's now managed by the Live Wildly Foundation, which is a separate 501c3, but it's, um, it's designed to make the Florida Wildlife Corridor more accessible to more people. Um, there's a certain group of Florida that's going to be inherently interested in wildlife corridors and want to learn more about it. But the idea with Live Wildly is that the Florida Wildlife Corridor connects to all of us. Mm-hmm. And whether it's your drinking water or just knowing that wildlife exists or recreation, all Floridians depend on the Florida Wildlife Corridor. So Live Wildly is trying to use a brand campaign to try to bring this idea of connecting to our wild places to people throughout the state. Do you worry that this campaign that is drawing attention to the the corridor and encouraging people to go out there and explore it will ultimately 
destroy it. You know, I, I just think in my time in Florida, what I've seen happen to Itchituckney River and uh, Wakula Springs and all these these places that are even. I just saw some photos that you took of the Chazowitzka River, and last time I was there, I went to a swimming hole that was. Gross. It was just, you because know, the human. Because the human because aspect of it. Trash and pla- yeah. it's sad. It was very sad. So I'm wondering, do you have that that concern about the wildlife corridor? I think we always need to watch out for and manage the use of the public lands, but that sort of potential for overuse is not nearly as dangerous as not being connected and not knowing that these places exist. I want, I want every Floridian to have a connection to the wildlife corridor. Mm-hmm. That means going to your local state park or it means knowing that it's there and appreciating that that's where all of our wildlife live and so much of our quality of life comes from. I often think that uh, if, if, if people could get a great connection with uh, wild Florida and the way Florida used to be by just taking a canoe trip down the Hillsborough River, and you feel like you're stepping into time. And that's just one tiny aspect of the wild parts of the state that a lot of people don't even see. Absolutely. It's a great example. I mean, I think I want people to think big and I want people to think how everything is connected. I mean, it, when, you really, when you really boil it down, a wildlife corridor is an artifact of what's left yes. from what was. And I mean, I, 100 years ago, two, 300 years ago, it was all connected. Mm-hmm. And right. the, what we are dealing with are connecting the remnants and trying to save and revive this balance. Right. And, and, and yet, uh, as much progress is being made, and today was a great day for progress um, with all that land uh, being preserved, you still have threats, uh, as Janet mentioned at the beginning, from uh, the state government, like the Department of Transportation. There was a plan to build three highways, and it was almost like they were targeting the Florida Wildlife <laughs> Corridor. Let's just go ahead and destroy it now. Uh, but those projects seem to have gone away. Uh, I know there's occasional, there's an interchange uh, near Spruce Creek that appears to be a threat. Uh, how, how, do you, how are you dealing with that, and were you involved in trying to block those highways? The highways were a real motivation to me because we had our transportation planners making a 10-year plan, talking about investing tens of billions of dollars in an infrastructure project. And we need to be doing the exact same thing with our green infrastructure. And so in a lot of ways, the, the MCORS projects, the, the ambitious toll roads, I think they laid the foundation for people to think big about connecting green space because <laughs> you can't have one without the other. Right. And you know now through... Our work with the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, the Department of Transportation, and the Department of Environmental Protection are working more closely together. So as they plan new roads and look at new opportunities, they're trying to align the green infrastructure, the Florida Forever Project, the areas where by planning ahead, you can make sure you don't do the harm when you build roads. Uh, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. Our guest today is Carlton Ward Jr., a conservation photographer who is working, among other things, to protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor. We'll be right back after this um, promotional message from your favorite radio station. 
There's no party like a house party, and the best house party is heard right here on WMNF. The Saturday night house party is heard Saturdays from 8 to 10 p.m. and hosted by yours truly, DJ Sinflow. The best in old school dance music, hip-hop, soul can be heard on the house party. So tune in and let us bring the party to you, the Saturday night house party. Saturday Night House Party, one of the best shows on WMNF, and we're back. Um, this is the Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, and in the studio with us is Carlton Ward Jr., conservation photographer. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation and give us your thoughts on the Florida Wildlife Corridor and protecting the Florida environment, give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. That's exactly what David Bryant did. He says, thank you for bringing Carlton on the show today. And he would like to see Carlton Ward run for governor. Any possibility that we will see that happen? Oh, goodness. I think my, <laughs> my place is behind a camera and telling the story. Um, Interesting that David brings that up, though, because <laughs> you have deep roots in Florida. You mentioned you, you uh, were in Africa. That was your first professional experience, really, but you kept coming back to Florida. And uh, finding the places that you grew up with starting to disappear. But you, your roots go back, what, eight generations? And you have a great-grandfather who was a governor of Florida. So tell us about your family. When did they come here? Where were they? So my family came to Florida <clears throat> in the mid-1800s. Um, the deepest recent roots are in Hardy County near Wachula, I, I actually am related to Doyle Carlton III, who's one of the ranchers who's receiving a conservation easement uh, this cabinet meeting. He's, he's a distant cousin. Um, my great-grandfather, Doral Carlton, was born in Wachula in 1885. He went on to become Florida's 25th governor from 1929 to 1933. And I later learned he... Bad timing for him being in the Depression and all... It was a tough time. I think coming out of it, land was affordable, so some of the family's ranch lands um, benefited from that. But he, I learned recently, uh, owned part of Caladesi Island, and he worked with huh. the mayor of Dunedin, Gerald Ream, in the 1960s to make it a state park. And so maybe ah. I do have some conservation that, in my so ancestry. This runs in, the, in the family. Now, you <laughs> didn't grow up in Hardy County. You were more of a suburban kid, right? Yeah, I grew up in Clearwater, um, but we had... And we still have a family ranch and a lot of cousins who are full-time cowboys. So I had one foot in the heartland and one foot on the coast. And I think it gave me perspective about the two Floridas and one that is hidden in plain sight from so many of the people here on the coastline. Population turning over 70% of people born somewhere else. Population growth is astounding. My, I, I, I had a real pivotal time in 1999. I was writing a magazine story for a class at the University of Florida. And I went out with my great uncle, Doral Carlton Jr., who he and his wife started Cracker Country uh -huh. at the Florida State Fairgrounds. We went to his Horse Creek Ranch and he told me about, as a boy, going with the cowboys and moving cows on horseback for two or three days at a time, camping under the stars and never seeing a fence. Huh. In the year he was born, in the early 1940s, there were 2 million people in the state of Florida. So in one person's lifetime, we've gone from, he was born before that, but we've, we've gone from 2 million people the decade my dad was born to 22 million people mm -hmm. today. Um, globally, it's two and a half or three times the rate of population. So that the pressures 
on the Florida landscape are really strong. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's amazing to have the progress we're having today. It's amazing to have people thinking about the Florida Wildlife Corridor as a framework and planning and recognizing we need to have this balance. But we actually have to pick up the pace of conservation because for so many things, such as climate and the oceans and land conservation, this is the decisive decade. Mm-hmm. Um, well, given the number of people who are now moving to Florida, the the, the intense the pressure is even more intense, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Well, Florida is like an accelerator. It's an experiment. If we can get it right here, we can get it right anywhere. And, and we have to. Um, the Corridor Foundation commissioned an economic study that came back and reported that there are 900,000 acres of highest priority, highest threat land within the corridor that we need to protect by the end of this decade to have a chance at saving it. If we look at the tremendous progress of the governor and cabinet over the past year, across three cabinet meetings from September 2021, there have been 56,000 acres protected across 20 different properties in the corridor. But if we compare that to the 900,000 acres we need to protect by the end of the decade, we need to double the pace of conservation in order to balance out the pace of development. That same economic study and the Florida 2070 study from the University of Florida and Florida Department of Agriculture shows that we're losing 100,000 acres of land every year to development. So we've got to be saving 10,000 acres a month just to have parity with what's being lost and to find this balance. So the time is now to really even go further with land conservation. Tremendous support for this, though, it seems like. And, and, and to me, it's, it, it unifies Democrats, Republicans, independents. So we were, uh, we, if you, if we traveled up to Cedar Key not that long ago, and the signs to, against that highway they wanted to build were all over the place. The signs for Donald Trump were also all over the place. This kind of issue unites people on both sides of the political divide, don't you think? I do, yeah. We, we had unanimous bipartisan support for the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act yeah. in the 2021 legislative session. And it's because, especially here in Florida, you can see the challenge. Yeah. You can feel the challenge. No one is away or insulated from the changes and the pressures that this state is facing. And the land is that common ground that connects us all. And it's the one thing that we can agree on. And your, your family, you mentioned, uh, is in ranching, uh, was in ranching for many decades. And, and, and you have worked closely with ranchers to try to get them to buy in. And you've had a lot of success with that, right? Tell us about that. Tell us about the connection there between ranching and land preservation. Or ranching and agriculture and land preservation, particularly the Florida Wildlife Corridor. If you look at the state of Florida, if you look at the Wildlife Corridor, um, most of those gaps of protection that are between our big public lands, you know, between Everglades National Park and Big Cypress and Ocala National Forest and Apalachicola National Forest, these are working lands. Um, when I started doing this documentary work, there were more than 6 million acres of working ranch lands in Florida. The number is down to 5-ish million today. But it can be said that these ranches are the most pivotal landscape in the state because they're the ones, all of them have an X on them for development. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the easiest places to put in a new city or a new town. It's happening all, oh my all gosh. the time. We and watched it happen in Hillsborough County South Hillsborough County. It's, it's tremendous pressure these landowners face. And 
with the real estate tax pressures, with families growing and fractional ownership getting smaller and smaller, without some sort of investment in conservation, it's about three generations before a ranching family without other income can't afford to keep holding on to their land. Mm -hmm. And it's not other ranchers waiting on the sidelines to buy it. It's that real estate investment trust or that, or that new developer who wants to get that land. There's a lot of interest in protecting the land. If you look at things like the Florida Forever List or the Rural and Family Lands Protection Program, these lists have hundreds of landowners who are looking to conservation easements and other forms of land protection as an alternative to the development that they, that they know they're facing. Mm -hmm. Because they like the lifestyle that they have. They don't necessarily want it, their their ranches to be turned into subdivisions, but there's often pressure for them to do it anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, the, once the development's at the doorstep, it's yeah. almost too late because the values go so high on these lands. Yeah. But mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a deep commitment to the land, to the heritage that exists in these places. And, you know, a Florida cattle ranch is not just a bunch of a hay grass with a barbed wire fence around it. A lot of these places are intact functioning ecosystems that share the same biodiversity as the adjacent state park. Right. So so basically the agricultural land and the ranch land actually functions for wildlife. There's wildlife oh, there absolutely. as well, abundant with wildlife. You take the Florida panther, which which I've been focusing on for the past seven years with the Path of the Panther project. There is no recovery of the Florida panther in the state of Florida without the preservation of ranch lands. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the, that project um, later in the, in the hour. Um, let's talk a little bit more, though, about conservation photography. You call yourself a conservation um, photographer, um, and you published a book called Conservation Photography that's considered a founding document in this new field. Um, and you're also a founder of the International League of Conservation Photographers. I want to know, what does it mean to be a conservation photographer? And then also... How did you come into photography? Because you, you talked about photography as a means for your conservation activities. Um, so two-part question, what does it mean to be a conservation photographer and how did you come into photography? Well, you know, photography for me was kind of a portal for exploration that I picked up in college when I had the chance to study abroad and I was fascinated by the techniques and photograph sports NCAA football and basketball and things like that <laughs> for the school newspaper. Um, but I was studying biology and anthropology at the same time I was picking up a camera. And you can't ignore kind of the trajectory of people on this planet and the issues. And it wasn't until during and after graduate school where I was kind of intentionally trying to combine the study of ecology. I did a master's in ecology at the University of Florida, but I also studied photojournalism in the, in the journalism department and interned with then the then St. Petersburg Times as a photojournalist and oh. was trying to marry these two worlds because I see, um, I see science and conservation as informing my vision and understanding, but photography is the voice that you can help try to reach beyond the choir, reach beyond the scientific community. As I got further into that, and I... It, it wasn't actually a book, it was just my master's thesis on conservation photography, but I had a chance to interview so many of my heroes from National Geographic and people who are making change with their work. And there's a real tradition of photography as advocacy for impact. It started from the beginnings. Uh, William Henry Jackson in the U.S. Geological Survey 
conservation and science going together to establish the world's first national parks. Fast forward to the year 2000, Michael Nick Nichols from National Geographic is trekking across Africa with Mike Fay from the Wildlife Conservation Society. Their series of magazine articles and their focused advocacy inspired the president of Gabon to create 13 new national parks. So there's huh. still this kind of undeniable power of showing people what's valuable, what's there, what's at stake, because not everyone has a chance to see it and be connected with it. And in a world that is rapidly urbanizing, photography and storytelling has such a high importance, in my, in my opinion, for helping connect people to these issues. Well, and your <clears throat> photography is so lovely. It's funny that you're talking about the suburbs and what a danger they are, but even looking at your photographs, some aerial photographs that you've done of development, they're beautiful. There's just like these beautiful colors and they look, there's a, a real beauty to them. And a lot of it, I think, is about the light. You um, posted something recently on social media that you said your favorite light is the golden hour um, on the edge of a storm rolling in. Um, talk about capturing that. Can you put that into the into words at all? And if you can picture it out there, folks, it's that golden, golden light that you get on the trees with the black skies in the background, sort of. That's interesting to talk about because it's it shows that like whether you're a photographer or a painter, your vision what gets your heart going, you know, you, the way you see as an artist is formed in a very early age. I mean, I didn't pick up a camera till I was off in college in North Carolina, but growing up as a kid exploring the Gulf Coast and spending time at the confluence of those elements where the tide and the wind and the storms and the warm light coming out over the Gulf of Mexico, there's this like visual tension that brings things to life there. And even, even, the light I'm drawn to in other parts of the world is kind of forged by my upbringing here mm -hmm. on Florida's Gulf Coast. Yeah, I would say Florida Gulf Coast sunsets, there's really nothing more beautiful. It's just really incredible. Our beaches, I know you've spend, you're spending more time, I think, on the Gulf. We can talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, I mean, it is a really incredible landscape. We are really lucky to live here, I think. Absolutely. Um, so talk a little bit about where you're finding your inspiration right now. Is there an artist or a writer or a book or anybody that is inspiring you in your work? I find inspiration everywhere. It's whether you know it's in it's in nature, it's in my colleagues and other photographers at National Geographic and seeing the stories they're posting. Um, you know, I'm I'm beginning what I what I feel is gonna become a long term documentary on Florida's Gulf Coast, um, and I've been reading the book The Gulf by Jack Davis. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and professor at the University of Florida who I had a chance to know when I was there. But this book, The Gulf, kind of captures the, the rich tapestry of this American sea and not, you know, all the way back to paleo times and mm -hmm. talks about the paintings of Winslow Homer from you know the turn into the 20th century and this image of a Florida panther on a sable palm tree called hmm. in the jungle Florida from Homosassa you had a time when those wow. type of sites actually still occurred wow you had mentioned that national geography those photographers were one of your inspirations um 
That must have been a dream come true when you actually had your first photograph printed in National Geographic. How did that happen? My first photo published was a picture of a red mangrove just in the front of the magazine 10 or 12 years ago. Um, and it happened from an eccentric editor I met there who I was pitching a story on something else and my pitch wasn't good enough, but she said, hey, I need a good <laughs> picture of a mangrove. And I had a few of those and one from the east side of Tampa Bay <laughs> found its way into the front of the magazine. But it wasn't until April of 2021 that I had my first full feature story published in the magazine. And that was the story of the Florida Panther that I kicked off with two grants from the National Geographic Society in 2016 and 2017. And it took about five years of work to get the body of imagery needed to tell that story. And uh, the, the quality of the photographs shows. We've got um, uh, Steve on the line in Tampa. So um, Steve's on the line. Steve, thanks for um, patiently waiting. We're going to take your call. If you want to call, talk to Carlton Ward, ask him any questions about the Florida Wildlife Corridor or his work as a conservation photographer. You can give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email um, at dj at wmnf.org. Um, Steve in Tampa, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Uh, very nice to hear from you on the radio. Um, Corkshire Swamp, you had talked a little bit earlier about how nice pieces of the property kind of get surrounded. And uh, I've been down there a long time, but it used to be one of my favorite places to go, a beautiful place. But I got, kind of thought it was going to wind up just getting boxed in. Do you know the status? And is that my main question is if that's anywhere near what might work into a corridor? Steve, that's a, a great question and a place that is indeed dear to my heart. I've spent a lot of time doing some camera trap there, work there with um, Audubon of Florida. And it is um, one of these choke points that if we don't do some good work in conservation in that landscape in the next several years, it could very much become an island cut off from the rest of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. As it stands now... Corkscrew Swamp, Audubon's Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary, Crew, which is a Corkscrew Regional Ecosystem Watershed. Those lands support panthers, they support bears, everything that was in Florida a thousand years ago still exists in these spots. But Naples is and Fort Myers are pushing in from the west and they're increasingly narrow bands of agricultural land that keep these areas connected to the Ocalacoochee Slough State Forest and Big Cypress National Preserve further inland to the east. And it's about keeping these branches connected to the trunk of the tree. And if we don't protect some of these farmlands and other agricultural lands surrounding Immokalee, Corkscrew Swamp has a very real chance to be an island. Hmm. One of the pictures in the National Geographic story on the Florida panther shows a female panther kind of just gracefully stepping through a barbed wire fence entering mm -hmm. Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary. And I, I chose that picture and pursued that image not to show a division, but to show that adjacent landscapes are functioning as a connected whole because Corkscrew Swamp is 20 square miles. A male panther needs a home range of 200 square miles. So right. many panthers use Corkscrew Swamp, but if they don't have access to that fabric of ranches and other state and federal lands and other agricultural lands, that green fabric of the Florida Wildlife Corridor, over time, 
the ability to survive there is going to diminish. Steve, thanks for that call. Appreciate it. And if you haven't been okay. to Corkscrew Swamp, I've highly recommend it. It's very accessible. It has a boardwalk, and you can really get a sense of what the, the depths of wild Florida are by not going very far from your car. Have your camera ready, too, because there's been some lucky visitors who have had some glimpses of panthers on that same boardwalk. Um, we got a couple um, emails and text messages. Let's read those. Um, we got a, Bubba. Um, thanks for um, this um, email or text message, Bubba. He wants to know, Carlton, what you think about the phosphate strip mining in Florida. Can those mining sites ever become pristine again? I'm amazed by how big the gypsum stack near Progress Village is now. Any thoughts on that? Phosphate mining is a challenge. I mean, I think it's a, as a point of impact, it's probably less destructive than full-scale development, but it's one of these things, it, it's, it's close to my mind lately because where our family's ranch is located in, in Hardy County, it's in the Bone Valley, the Peace River Valley, Mosaic owns lands mm -hmm. in the greater surrounding area. It's why it's more important than ever to give landowners options for these conservation easements because it's kind of like a like a chess game and the more land that you can get tied up in an easement the fewer land that's available for development or for phosphate mining phosphate is one that kind of bites two ways it, it's hard on the land but then we end up putting more nutrients into our waterways from it so it's it's really um it's something that needs to be paid attention to right well the nutrients in the waterways are a bad thing correct that's we don't want that I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, okay. <laughs> we, we, we get we get too much phosphorus and nitrogen right. in our waterways. It leads to algae blooms. A paper from the University of Florida just in the past month has actually linked those algae blooms to exacerbating and intensifying red tides. Yeah. So we um we also have a message from Ron in West Tampa. He just wants to say that he um Carlton he says my compliments and appreciation to Carlton Ward for all the good work he has done and the magnificent photography which does justice to our wildlife and their plight. Every natural acre saved is a precious gift to all of us. Thank you. And Ron really is getting the point of what you were just saying is that the the photography is about calling people's attention to the wildlife that's out there and, and moving them in a way so that they will want to protect it. I read a quote yesterday that said, um, people care about what they know about and they protect what they care about. So, you know, you're informing people of what's out there, making them care, and then perhaps instilling a desire to protect. That's certainly the hope. I mean, <laughs> and it, and I can see it in my own, in my own past. I mean, I spent the first few years of my career going halfway around the halfway around the world to find stories that hadn't been told and I'm realizing now I have an entire lifetime of stories in my own backyard that are still stories that are relatively untold because it's hidden in plain sight I mean these yeah. places are hidden in plain sight we I have great envy of the Rocky Mountains and places like Denver Colorado where you can be sitting in a city and whether you ever go out into those mountains, you can see them, you know they're there, you know they have intrinsic value, you know they're their source of your water. That's not the same for the Green Swamp. Here in Tampa, here in Pinellas County, that's our water tower. That's mm -hmm. where our water comes from. But unless you make an intentional effort to get out there in a canoe or to go explore it, it's hidden in plain sight. Yes, and so in that situation, photography and film and art are, are useful to help build those connections for people. Uh, the, the the famed uh, uh, Florida uh, wildlife photographer uh, Clyde Butcher has taken so many wonderful photos right outside his house 
Um, and it just shows the, the beauty that's right there in front of us that we often just ignore. Um, we, also, uh, we have Nancy from St. Pete on the line. Nancy from St. Pete. Um, Nancy, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Hi. Uh, yes, I was reading an article uh, the other day, um, uh, which I can remember where, uh, and it had to do with assessing a dollar amount to something as ethereal as what this gentleman is talking about, the beauty that is all around us and right in front of us, and how to, um, how to use that assessment as, uh, uh, against development. You know, Florida has always tried to have it both ways. How would you assess that? What do you, what do you, um, can what, you explain that? I'm not sure what you mean. Okay, so many people would, would not mind, uh, you know, um, chopping down uh, 100, 200, 300-year-old trees because trees don't pay rent. Mm-hmm. See what you're saying? Yeah. However, that tree is lovely. It has a wonderful history, and it sustains a whole bunch of life that we're not even aware of. And has a lot of uh, good things like shade, and uh, who knows? And it puts oxygen into the air, and it's an old hand. Yeah, that, you know. So, so you're talking about fines for chopping down trees or something mm -hmm. like that? You know, well, I, I understand what she's saying. Okay, you go ahead. Yeah, Carlton, I mean, it's just I'm being dense. No, we we um. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. We, we treat we treat in our economics. We treat the natural world as something that's free. Mm -hmm. You know, a forest doesn't have value until it's lumber. You know, the high seas don't have value until you catch the fish. And I think the climate crisis is actually helping provide the beginnings of a shift in that way of thinking because we understand that a big old growth tree, the amount of carbon that tree is holding and sequestering has a value all by itself just for being that tree. Mm -hmm. Not to mention the air we breathe, and all the services it provides. The same can be said about these fish in the oceans. These, you know, a whale, how much carbon has that whale sequestered out of that environment and when it decomposes onto the ocean floor? Mm -hmm. I mean, all, all of these living animals in the biosphere are part of the solution in maintaining the balance of this planet. And that's just one slice of the economic value. You start to look at the aesthetics, the ecotourism, mm -hmm. the environmental services, you know, what they do to clean and provide our water. We're just at the beginning of trying to start to quantify what these things mean. Hmm. So let's uh, talk about the path of the panther, uh, if we could. Uh, you know, when I moved to Florida 40 years ago, it looked like things were really at the end for the Florida panther. We were down to perhaps less than a couple dozen, and now... We have maybe 200. 200, maybe more. So the panther is a success story. And you have been, but it's still threatened. It's still an endangered species. And you've been spending the last six years uh, trying to capture these elusive uh, animals in photos. Um, tell us about uh, your work since 2016 and how you captured these amazing photos. And folks, you already mentioned the National Geographic uh, issue in April 2021. I encourage anyone who hasn't seen them, some of the greatest panther photos probably ever made. How did you get those? The Florida panther is one of the hardest animals to see in the wild. Um, and so all that work relied heavily on camera traps. And that's a technique where you take a professional camera 
and some lights, and you basically set up a studio in the woods with an infrared tripwire, and you wait for an animal to take its own picture. <laughs> it's a <clears throat> selfie. And even in the core, exactly, even in the core of panther territory in places like Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, you know, my cameras are seeing one panther come by a month. And maybe every two months where you can see one of their eyes or they're facing the camera. Maybe once or twice a year with any manner of daylight because they're mostly nocturnal animals. Mm -hmm. So it often took two or three or, or four years to get like the quality of picture that I was looking for. There's, wow. one, there's one spot, um, there's actually two different spots where it took five years um, to, capture, to capture the photo. One of them was in a, like in, a, in a cypress swamp that is underwater for eight months of the year. So you'd have these trails between the cypress knees that would emerge just in the dry season. And finally, after five years, I got this photo of a young panther walking straight towards the camera in a landscape that could be nowhere else in the world other than South Florida. But the Path of the Panther Project, um, you know, started in 2015. I I'd, I'd completed the two big Florida Wildlife Corridor expeditions. The Florida Wildlife Corridor and its protection has been my motivation and my thrust of my storytelling um, since, we, since we founded the project in 2010. But I got a one-day assignment from National Geographic Travel to get a landscape shot of Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. <laughs> I went there in July of 2015. I'm like, okay, I'm going to set up a camera trap, come back a month later and check it. I'll spend a little bit of my own time on it, but maybe I'll get a shot. Well, the, the, um, the blog I wrote for that assignment was called Cooperative Bear Frustrating Panther. I ran the camera trap for two months. Um, I got a nice shot of a black bear stepping over a log between the strap ferns and the cypress knees. And I got one picture of a female panther walking away from the camera. Mm -hmm. And it was like she was daring me to follow <laughs> her into this world. But at the same time, I was connecting with scientists like David Schendel from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and folks from the FWC panther team and understanding the plight of the Florida panther, as you mentioned. They were down to fewer than 20 in the 1970s. They're up to 200 today, thanks to some genetic recovery and um, land protection but for the Florida panther to reach sustainable numbers, there needs to be three times as many panthers spread across three times as much land. That means reclaiming much of their historic, historic territory where there's still large swaths of land left throughout Florida. And the path for that recovery is the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Hmm. Because without it, our state's 200 panthers will be sealed off and isolated to the southern tip of Florida where they're always going to be on life support because there's not enough land to support the genetic diversity needed for that panther population. So you have those cameras out there and you said how you check them how often frequently do you check them? You had a camera out there for 5 years. How often do you check it? You need to go once a month. You try to go more often in some places. And this is not just me. This became a team effort. We we've started you know, I, I started an organization called Wild Path, and we use stories and campaigns to promote conservation. The Path of the Panther Project is our biggest project. We're a team of seven people who works um, on these conservation campaigns and on this work. We did a lot of photography of all the properties that were protected at today's cabinet meeting. Hmm. And we actually have a social media toolkit. I'm going to mention this so I don't forget it. If you go to wildpath.com forward slash progress, there's a social media toolkit there where you can download pictures of all the properties that have been protected and share them out to celebrate mm -hmm. not just the progress of today, but the hope of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. 
the Path of the Panther project, um, we have uh, people in the field checking and taking care of these cameras. George McKenzie is our field programs manager now. He's based at Archibald Biological Station. We've moved our camera network from the Southern Everglades. We accomplished our goal in getting the story, getting the pictures for National Geographic, getting the film for the Path of the Panther film that's in festivals now. It's a finalist at the Wild Screen and the Jackson Wild Film Festival coming up in September and October, which we're really excited about. And hopefully it'll be streaming um, by next spring. Oh, great. And the, um, uh, there is some tension between uh, panthers and uh, cattle ranchers, is there not? There can be, for sure. I mean, panthers do eat cattle. Yeah. It's not... It's not They're a wild animal. They will eat what they need to survive. And lots of things eat cattle. Coyotes, <laughs> bears, panthers, even buzzards can eat young panthers. Um, yeah, or, young I'm sorry, cattle. young cattle. Yeah. yeah, maybe a young panther. That'd be bad luck <laughs> for that panther. But... Um, no, there is a tension, but there's also a growing recognition by ranchers in Florida. And I think this is where Florida ranchers are leaders for the country to look at. There's a growing recognition that that panther and that rancher are in it together. Mm-hmm. And they're both endangered species in a state mm-hmm. where without intervention by conservation, that ranch, that home to that panther is going to be a development or a subdivision. We've got just a few minutes left, so we've got tons of folks calling in. So let's take a couple phone calls. Um, we've got um, Doug in Clearwater. Doug wants to talk about Wikiwatchy. Doug, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, I want to say how happy I am to hear what you said about the Panthers. Um, I was afraid that we were just going to lose them all out. Um, but the fact that we've increased the population makes me feel good. It's a but, success story for sure. And it should, it should encourage other protections, right, Carlton? Isn't that the idea here? Yeah, I think Doug might have a second part to his question, but uh, I'll, I'll definitely yeah. share my thoughts on Go ahead, Doug. the Panther, too. Well, no, what I called in about was wiki-watchy and... I'm a little disappointed. I mean, I've been there many times. And what I hear, and maybe I get the wrong message, is they're restricting access to it now because of all the damage that's been done to it. Mm -hmm. But but yet, the property owners, and I, I understand if you own property... You know, you should have a right for whatever you want to do. But, you know, you send motorboats up and down that river. Come on, it does more damage than what I do on a kayak. Yeah. That's all I got. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Thoughts on that, Carlson? Yeah, well, working backwards, I'm not as familiar with the challenges of Wikiwachi. I mean, I know, I mean, that head spring is 50 yards from U.S. Highway 19, and our springs in Florida are mm-hmm. victim to the immediate impacts of what happens right at their edge, but they also represent a spring shed or a watershed that goes miles beyond what you see at the surface. And their their lenses in like a portal into into our bigger problems of overpumping the aquifer and pollution. And um, but they're also this amazing place that can bring people together to want to stand up for water quality. So mm-hmm. lots of work to do there, but I think it's worth paying attention to. Um, 
you know, on the, um, what was Doug's question on the Panther? Can you help me remember? Well, I think he was uh, amazed and, and happy. Oh, that they yeah, were he was just commenting. Yeah. the Panthers. The, the, the numbers and, were and, coming and back. And I think this is yeah. a message that maybe a lot of people have not received because all they've heard before is how our state animal is endangered and there was no hope, it seemed. Mm-hmm. But there is hope. As someone who spends like my professional life exploring and photographing these places in the northern Everglades and the northern part of the state and the Panhandle, you know, I can tell you from firsthand experience, there is space for panthers to recover in Florida and the southeast. But we, the time we have to act to save those lands is now. Well, you proved it on your expeditions that there's space. Uh, we don't have time for too many more calls. I want to mention that um, uh, John in Dade City wants to let you know, Carlton, that he saw um, six months ago, he saw a Florida panther in northern Pasco County. Jim in Bradenton, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to tell us why this is a political issue. 30 seconds, because we're running out of time. Yeah, um, until you solve the, the problem with, with the politicians giving everything away to the developers, this isn't going to end. This is gonna, just going to get much, much worse. All right, Jim. Thank, that was good. 30 seconds. That was that was very concise. I appreciate it. On election day. Good point. Um, thanks to all of our... Thanks, Carlton, for being here so much. We really, really appreciate it. And thanks for all of your great work. Thanks to all of our callers. Thanks to everyone who emailed. Thanks to John for answering the phones. How can people get involved in your work, Carlton? Well, today, it's that, it's that very specific ask. Please go to wildpath.com forward slash progress. Go into the social media toolkit, get the pictures of all these seven properties that were voted to be saved today, and share them and help spread the word. And, and what's that website again? Wildpath, W-I-L-D-P-A-T-H mm-hmm. dot com forward slash progress. And that'll take you straight to that social media toolkit. But um, yeah, connect with us, connect with the Path of the Panther Project, connect with other like-minded organizations like the Florida Wildlife Quarter Foundation and the Nature Conservancy. And, you know, we can do this. People can make a difference, can't they? I mean, absolutely. this is what being a wave maker is all about, folks. Get away from your computer. Get out into the wild Florida and enjoy what's out there. Um, and if you know a wave maker, send us an email at WMNF at WMNF.org and um, let us know who you'd like to have on the show, who you'd like to see us have on the show. Um, stay tuned. Um, uh, we've got three hours of great music coming up right after NPR News headlines. This is WMNF Tampa. 